please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. of Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came... And took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. It seems to be a good season for us to fix our feet for a space. And consider the apologetic value of prophecy. We have come to the fifth verse in which Jesus Christ is proclaimed as the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David, the fulfillment of, at John's point in history, ancient prophecies, marvelously fulfilled at what the Apostle Paul calls the ends of the ages. In uh, past weeks, we talked about God's confirmation of his holy religion. He not only sent out messengers, uh, but he also sent them with the power to work miracles as a divine testimony concerning the truth of their message. Many men have gone out into the world claiming to speak for God. And most who have done so have been false. But God sent, set his own seal upon the message of his prophets and apostles as he gave them supernatural power from on high in the working of miracles. Or another way of expressing this, he sent forth his spirit and his spirit testified to the truth of the message by the working of miracles. 
we largely associate the worship of the uh, working of miracles with the work of the apostles in the first century. But we have a book full of miracles and not just uh, the record of such things done in history, but predictive prophecy, which is nothing less than a miracle of wisdom. The scripture is full of them. In uh, Revelation, when we turn to chapter 6 and we go forward in the history, we will see many miracles of wisdom as John inscribes things that he could not possibly have foreseen in human wisdom. Things that were yet future to him and quite unexpected on the natural realm. Things concerning the development of the Roman Empire and even events that pertain to the church. But before we go there, we are reminded that the appearance of Jesus Christ was nothing less than the fulfillment of hundreds of particular prophecies. The coming of the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Davidic King, the Messiah, having been foretold from of old, and we are in the midst of the consideration of those prophecies. But I, I also have another, I, of course, this is always useful when we share the gospel with others. But it is also useful to us in the confirming of our faith. I don't mind to repeat to you a distinction that I learned from C.S. Lewis because it is a very useful one. There are many times in our Christian walk that we will be confronted with what Lewis termed psychological doubts. These are not logical doubts, uh, attacks upon uh, arguments pertaining to the Christian religion and its uh, validation and proof. These are psychological doubts or emotional doubts that can rise from other areas. Sometimes, as we live in a world that uh, treats our religion as if it is out of touch with reality, we can begin to wonder, am I crazy? Can it be that uh, I have understood the truth while everyone around me, uh, by all appearances, intelligent people, they are wrong. Frequently, we, we struggle with this sort of thing. When we are called upon to suffer in following Christ, we can begin to wonder, as the psalmist uh, did of old, have I washed my hands in vain? I look around me at the wicked, and the wicked prosper, and they seem to flourish. And I look around at those who are following Christ, and they seem to struggle so. They fight battles without and battles within. And it's always useful as we struggle with these kinds of psychological doubts, as we pass through these uh, uh, nights of the soul, to look again and be reminded that we have not followed cunningly devised fables, but we follow uh, the testimony of eyewitnesses, and their testimony has been cons uh, confirmed with the certain proofs of heaven even the fulfillment of many prophecies that were quite impossible 
for uh, wisdom, the wisdom of men to discern. We have come to, and if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 49. This morning, I preach Christ to you as the fulfillment of this ancient prophecy. Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah. Genesis chapter 49, beginning with verse 8. Judah, thou art he whom my brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. Last week we spent almost the entirety of our time looking at the remote context of this most magnificent prophecy. Uh, This prophecy, this promise of uh, a son was delivered at the first fall of mankind uh, and has been in uh, development from roughly the year 4004 B.C., if you follow Usher's chronology, which, if not exactly right, is pretty close to being right. Uh, And in that uh, year, uh, the covenant of grace was first preached and proclaimed to fallen humanity. And the mediator of that covenant grace, Eve's son, was preached to Adam and Eve. So we find at the first preaching of the gospel that something even older is being revealed for the first time in the world. There was an eternal covenant between the Father and the Son, the covenant of grace. The son in that covenant was not contracting simply for himself, but for a people. Father and son had set their electing love upon a particular people, and the son contracted to represent them in the covenant of grace. The son promised to fulfill the just demands of the broken covenant of works. And those just demands were two. The covenant of works required perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience to all that God commanded and required. This was a just requirement, and it must be fulfilled. But this broken covenant of works also demanded the death of the sinner. As fallen man, we could not fulfill 
these obligations. We are incapacitated in our sinfulness from this perfect obedience. And it it demands our death. It demands a physical death. It demands a spiritual death. And an eternal death. And so although we could spend all of eternity trying to render this death, it will never be satisfied. Always requiring um, that the death go on and on. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared to fulfill this double demand. We read in the scriptures that he was ever a perfect law keeper. He came to fulfill all righteousness for the sake of his people. But he also appeared to die the death that they deserved, but which they could never pay in any sort of fullness. The Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled these terms, fulfilled the double demand of the broken covenant of works, fulfilled his part in the covenant of grace. There was a promise made from the Father to the Son. Upon his fulfillment, the Son would receive that elect people as his prize. And from that people and their redemption, he would receive great glory. Last week, we spent a good amount of time looking at Isaiah 53, where you can see all of the components of this covenant of grace. And we also looked at Second Timothy chapter 1 and Titus chapter 1. This covenant of grace was not new in the world with Isaiah, but it said that God's elect people had received grace in Jesus Christ before the world began. So although the covenant of grace is first preached in the world upon the fall of man, it was no new thing at the fall of man, but rather the declaration of the provision of salvation that had already been covenanted before the world was first formed. So we find that the fall of man was no accidental occurrence, but something that God had already foreordained, and the remedy had also been foreordained. It's a most wonderful thing to consider that although the uh, uh, covenant of grace and the appearance of Jesus Christ the Mediator is sketched out in somewhat cryptic terms, yet we find that there is a certain fullness. We find that uh, the incarnation of the eternal Son of God is uh, preached there in the Garden of Eden. As I mentioned last week, uh, as John Gill points out, it does appear that Jesus Christ himself, and perhaps taking a human form and figure, preached the gospel to fallen Adam and Eve, showing himself to be the prophet of the church. The king of the church and the fact that they are arraigned before him, as well as the priest of the church and that animals are slaughtered and their skins are used as a covering that Adam and Eve were not able to cover themselves. There is some evidence in the naming of Cain, and I won't enlarge upon this, that um, Adam and Eve had some notion that the mediator would not only be a man, the son of Eve, but also God. 
as Eve declares in the birth of Cain, I have gotten a man, Jehovah. Two direct objects referring to one person. I have gotten Ish, a man, at Jehovah, the Lord. It seems that they had, although it's discussed in relatively cryptic terms, something of a comprehensive presentation of the gospel. And they lived in the faith of the appearance of this son. The son was no doubt expected through the line of Seth, as they are described as the sons of God in the scripture. And uh, although mankind proliferated, the promise came to be limited in the family of Noah, all the rest of the uh, families of the earth being destroyed. There is some evidence that the son would come through either the lines of uh, Japheth or Shem, but almost certainly not through the line of Ham. Then humanity increases and there is no further clarification until the age of Abraham. My first draft of this sermon ended up being completely taken up with the time of Abraham. And I wasn't able to get to uh, the prophecy of Judah. Let me summarize what ended up being a relatively large work. Abraham is promised a seed, which is not only the promise of a nation, but as Paul intimates in Galatians chapter 3, that seed was one. Even Jesus Christ and all of the others are contemplated in their union with him. Through the seed, a blessing was promised to the entire world. And it was even said that kings would come of Abraham. If you want to, uh, it's an interesting study for another time, but if you want to see how Joseph was a type of Jesus Christ, you can see it in this, that a king came from Jacob's line. And this king became a blessing to the entire world in that through his wisdom given from on high, he was able to feed the nations of the world. And in this way, he was the most eminent type of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we find that it was not, um, the promise would not come through all or just any of the children of Abraham. Ishmael is passed over and the promise is to come through Isaac. Esau is passed over and the promise is to come through Jacob. And this brings us to our immediate context. Jacob is old at this point, and he is dying. Roughly speaking, the year is about 1690 B.C., roughly 1690 B.C. Dying Jacob is said to bless his children, but his blessing is prophetical concerning the future of these tribes. Remember that... With Reuben, we might expect quite a bit more than what we actually get. There were three prerogatives that normally belonged to the firstborn, but which God, according to his electing grace, was free to set aside, and he did set aside. To the firstborn normally belonged the double portion, 
the double portion was taken from Reuben and given to Joseph in the persons of his two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, who received a double portion in Israel. The kingship, or the royal prerogative normally, belonged to the firstborn. That was given to Judah. And the priesthood normally belonged to the firstborn, and that is given to Levi. We have some intimation of this in First Chronicles. Let me simply read to you the text. If you ever wonder, what's the value of all these genealogies? Much, every way, if you have the eyes to see their significance and their importance. But the genealogy runs in this way. Now, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but for as much as he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given unto the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, And the genealogy is not to be reckoned after the birthright. For Judah prevailed above his brethren, and of him came the chief ruler. But the birthright was Joseph's. 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It's very interesting. One other word on the immediate context here. You can imagine that Judah was probably at this point trembling. Here a a blessing had been uh, promised, and yet Reuben, Simeon, and Levi had received every bit of what sounded like a curse. The only blessing being that they still received a portion in Israel and not been completely cut off for their sins and their transgressions. And if you remember the history in uh, the book of Genesis, Judah was far from guiltless in many of these same affairs. But, according to God's uh, special grace, he uh, passes on a great blessing to Judah, a blessing that he could not possibly have imagined. Here I want to add a goal to our uh, study so you'll understand why I'm taking the method that I'm taking. We do want to see the fulfillment of these prophecies both immediately and then ultimately in Jesus Christ. But I don't know about you, when we just read Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12, probably there was part of it that you understood right away, but some of it uh, couched in poetic and symbolic terms that are very difficult to understand. If you're like me, you read some of that and you scratch your head. Okay, what's the significance of tying your foal to a vine or washing your garments in the blood of grapes, and who is the Shiloh, and how can we be sure? We will uh, take up these considerations now at some length. I do believe that this is of great interest. It's clearly of some great difficulty. But most important of all, if we're going to see the fulfillment of it in Jesus Christ, we must understand its terms. Sometimes this comes in an easy way, and sometimes it comes in a hard way. This morning it comes in the hard way. So let us uh, take up verse 8 of chapter 49, if you have your text in front of you. I've also uh, included some, some Hebrew notes in your, in your outline so that you can see some things firsthand. One thing I cannot do very much with is the the beauty of the poetry here. Here you have a 
prophetical blessing that is also couched in very beautiful uh, language. You'll probably get some intimation of it, although we can't do very much with it. Verse 8. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. If we break this up into its constituent elements, first notice, um, quite literally, and you'll notice the italics in your Bible, there's been a gloss or some words added by the King James translators to attempt to render the sense or to make it more smoothly. If If I were to render it very woodenly in the Hebrew, it would be, Judah, thou art. Stop. Thy brethren shall praise thee. Stop. Uh, In this way, I I think you start to see uh, even more strikingly the significance. Judah, the name Judah or Yehuda in the Hebrew means praise. Praise thou art. Thy brethren shall praise thee. And you see the the play on words. This name and its etymology goes back to Leah's naming of her fourth son. The text reads in this way, And she conceived and bare a son, and she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Uday from Yudah. You hear the Yehuda? The verb is Yudah. To praise. So she says, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she shall call his name Judah or Yehuda and left off bearing. So his name means praise. When she first uttered it, what was in focus was that she was praising the Lord in the birth of this child. Now Jacob does a little something different with the name. He says, praise thou art, thy brethren shall praise thee. So there is something here of of an elegant and beautiful play upon words. And you're already starting to see what the chronicler talks about. Already you're seeing signs of the honor that would normally belong to the firstborn. Thy brethren shall praise thee. The honor of the firstborn is going to belong to you. Jacob goes on. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Most of us will understand the significance of this right away. Judah here is being proclaimed as something of a warrior. That he is going to be preeminent in conquest and in the subjugation of enemies. The the language here is um, laying your hand upon the the neck of your enemy. If you've... um, Maybe ever seen an angry parent take a child by the scruff of the neck? It's something like this. It's an image of subjugation. You've got your hand upon his throat and he is at your mercy. Here we have a prophecy that was fulfilled in this tribe of Judah. Very quickly, this would be, uh, would be fulfilled after the Mosaic Age. During the time of the conquest, the tribes of Israel, you can read this at the beginning of the book, books of the, uh, the book of Judges, the tribes of Israel inquire of the Lord, who shall go up? 
And uh, the Lord says that Judah will go up first. And they led the way in the conquest. And as they led the way in the conquest, they would also bring it to its completion in the person of David. Now, this is more than 400 years removed. And we'll talk about this process of development as well. If you want to see a strange and marvelous thing, if we have eyes to see the terms in which Jacob's prophecy is delivered, you will also see the prophecy of a development. That this is not something that would be done all at once but it would begin small and develop towards its conclusion. And ultimately, the kingdom of Judah would be settled in peace under Solomon, whose very name meant peace. I want you also to remember here that as we uh, look again at Revelation chapter 5, that it is said that the lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed. It's language once again of conquest. And now you're starting to see the similarity and why it is that this elder gathered around the throne might evoke this language of this conquering one, the lion of the tribe of Judah. For after all, a conquering one was always promised to this uh, tribe. Ultimate victory over the enemies of the people of God would ultimately belong to the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ. And everywhere he is portrayed as a mighty king, winning a great victory over his enemies. By the blood of his cross, he won the great victory over the sins of his people. In his resurrection, he showed himself to be victorious over death. In his ascension into heaven, it's everywhere told us in the New Testament that he led captivity captive and made an open show of principalities and powers. It was the practice of ancient conquerors to lay the enemy kings and generals in irons and bring them back into their home city and make an open display of conquered adversaries. And we're taught that when the Lord Jesus Christ ascended on high, in like manner he did this. He made an open display of the weakness and all, of all of his enemies, that they were indeed defeated powers and foes. Indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed as one who has overcome the world, victorious over all of his enemies. <laughs> So we might say that David and Solomon did well, but what Judahite ever conquered, like the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, his his conquests excelled theirs the way that the sun excels the moon and the stars. But we learn in the very next phrase that it's not just a preeminence in conquest or a generalship that is promised to the tribe of Judah, but really kingship, inasmuch as thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Not just a general, but a king. Here you have an allusion to the practice of the peoples of the east where they would, uh, they would prostrate their bodies before their kings. And in much the same way it is said here that Judah's brethren would prostrate themselves before Judah. He would be acknowledged as a 
ruler by his brethren. Here we see the right of rule being transferred from Reuben to Judah. Verse 9. Judah is a lion's well. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion. And as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? Judah is first described here as a lion's whelp. Not too long ago, we discussed the characteristics of of the lion. You might remember some of them. Lions are known among all peoples for their strength, for their courage. You might say their ferocity and indomitable spirit. They do not tremble before enemies. Enemies do not make them afraid or chase them away, but rather their roar has a great tendency to terrify enemies and drive them away. And first, Judah is described as a lion's whelp, um, a lion's cub, if you will, a baby lion. And then the next description, from the prey, my son, thou art gone up. Here we have emphasis again upon conquest. With respect to a lion, the the lion's conquest is the taking of prey or food. Interpreters in in looking at this have have seen three shades of interpretation that are all very similar but but a little different. Some have looked at this and um, said it means something like having taken prey, Judah is then going to go up in victory. So from the prey, thou art gone up. Some have looked at it, and this is just a shade different. They've seen in it the habit of mountain lions who will descend into a valley to take prey, and having taken the prey and eaten, they will ascend the mountain again. But interestingly enough, even if that's what's in view, it probably means very much the first. Having taken prey, you've gone up on high. You've ascended in your uh, victory. I actually prefer a third interpretation. From the taking of prey, thou art growing up, which I think is is validated in the second half of the verse. Now, this is not too different than the first two interpretation, but it's it's a stronger allusion to the growth of the dominion of the tribe. So they're going to take prey, and from feeding upon prey and the taking of prey, they are going to grow up into dominion. And really, it's, it's the next expressions that cause me to favor that. Notice what is next said. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? This language of, of stooping and couching or crouching When you think of a lion, you might think of a lion that's getting ready to spring. That's not the sense here. The sense is is a lion who's resting securely, feeding upon his prey. So he's not getting ready to spring upon prey. He's taken his prey, and he sits down, and no one dares to disturb him while he is feeding. So he's gone from the taking of prey now to entering into rest. And no one can force or hurry him in the feeding upon his prey. And then the text ends with, Who shall rouse him up? No one will challenge him or dare to try to drive him off from his 
praying. Now, in dealing with the question, why do you think that the first ought to be translated something like, having taken prey, thou art growing up? You see, in, um, in the second half of the verse, something of a, a, of a development through the taxonomy, the Jewish taxonomy concerning lions, or the way that they would describe a lion in its various stages of development. I, I put the uh, Hebrew words uh, there in your, in your outline. Gur would be a whelp. This is a baby lion, and that's how Judah is first described. He's described as a baby lion. Then uh, among the Jews, there's, a, there's another stage, which is not mentioned here, but you do find it in other parts of the Bible. Kefir, which would be a young lion. And then you get a mature lion, which would be Aryeh, which is mentioned here. That's a mature or full-grown lion. And then uh, here translated aged lion, I think rightly, you get Lavi which is an aged lion, but not declining in its strength. Uh, some interpreters have seen it as being in, uh, very much attached to the word, Hebrew word lav. See the relationship, lavi, lav, which means heart, which might very well refer to the strength or the courage of this, this lion, now in the fullness of its powers. But a decrepit old lion would be layish. They had a different word. Uh, for this. So I do think that you see development in two lines in this text. From a lion's whelp to a lion in the fullness of its powers. So you see the growth of a strength and maturity. But you also see a development from the taking of prey to the entering in of rest. When we turn our attention back to the history of Judah. Now, remember, you want to associate the prophecy of Jacob with about the year 1690. Uh, the invasion of Palestine, uh, maybe with about the year 1440, so more than 200 years distant, he prophesied that uh, Judah, like a lion's whelp, would take the prey and did. And that through a process, they would, they would develop. David will complete the, um, the conquest. You might want to associate that with about the year 950. So it's through a process that Judah passes from a lion to the entering in of maturity and strength and ultimately into peace. Solomon, where no one will challenge him. Uh, in, uh, as he feasts upon his prey, as it were, about the year 900. It's very interesting that in the course of two verses, don't you have a most elegant, beautiful, and accurate prophecy of more than 500 years' worth of history? It's, it's most remarkable. And, uh, and the beginning of it would, wouldn't start until about 250 years after the utterance of Jacob himself. The prophecy would in a fashion lie dormant waiting for the ascendancy of Judah and in some ways appeared to be frustrated because the first great magistrate of Israel was of what tribe? Levi. Moses. 
And then the second great magistrate was of what tribe? Ephraim. Joshua. And so they would have to wait for the ascendancy of uh, Judah. But ascend they would. Uh, We have only begun to lay the, the groundwork because the text is now going to move on to its most perfect fulfillment in Jesus Christ. There's going to be some intimation that this rule of Judah is going to decay and ultimately fall, that uh, the scepter is going to depart from between his feet, the scepter of rule, but not before another figure appears, Shiloh, to whom pertains the gathering of the nations. Uh, If I have done my work well this morning, you will see in these small verses a wonderful history being portrayed in symbols and most marvelously fulfilled hundreds of years. And before its full fulfillment, more than a millennium and a half will roll by, but all perfectly fulfilled. And here is the ultimate challenge. Could human wisdom ever have foreseen such a marvelous course of events? When you struggle in your minds, when you begin to wonder, have we believed in vain? Have we washed our hands in vain? Have we followed cunningly devised fables? Return to these texts and find comfort for your souls. This is the religion of heaven, delivered in such a way as only heaven could deliver it. I thought perhaps before we leave off, let us sing the praise of our... Jesus. Psalm 45. 